Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, fellow devotees and dilettantes. Great word there, by the way. And welcome to yet another episode of Device Nation. Well, my name is Kevin Brown, your beneficent box opener, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. Look, if you want to support Device Nation, support my sponsors. Today, I just want you to check them out. Curvebeam.com, 3D CT scan in the office, low radiation dose. Why send your patients out for a scan? Get it done right then, right now. Get the information that only a standing 3D CT scan can provide. Curvebeam. Check them out. Curvebeam.com. Well, you're going to want to keep your arms and legs in the ride at all times today because we have a roller coaster of an interview with an orthopod trapped in a diagnostic radiologist's body, Dr. Joseph McGinley out of Casper, Wyoming. We're going to talk about his many inventions, his amazing practice up there in the Cowboy State, and for good measure, a little mountain climbing. You're going to want to stick around for that. And while we're on the subject of mountain climbing, we've been doing a little climbing of our own here on Device Nation, getting our steps in, going up the Behavioral Influence Stairway, authored by former FBI BSU chief and and friend of Device Nation, Dr. Greg Vecchi. I stayed at a hotel recently that was right next door to the Utah FBI State Headquarters. I texted Dr. Vecchi and said, look, I'm going to go knock on their door and see if they'll let me climb their behavioral influence stairway. I got the distinct impression with his response that they were not going to be amused at all and that I might just find myself being summarily tossed down a flight of stairs for my trouble, all in my quest for a laugh. I've had a little bit of rash of that lately. I was at a store the other day, and my cashier's name was Harmony, and I said, look, I've got a friend of mine with a daughter whose name is Melody. We've got to get you two together. She just glared at me, and I said, you're going to charge me extra for that joke, aren't you? And then it just got worse. So I'm thinking I should leave the comedy to the professionals. Well, Dr. Vecchi is a professional, and he has given us this wonderful framework to plug the relationship-centric world of medical device sales into. Quick review, we start at the landing with no relationship at all. Who are you? And why are you in my office? And then through questions and active listening, we find ourselves at the first step, an opportunity to get into our subject's frame by expressing empathy. Depending on how you did that step and the person across from you, you can be stuck here for years or move quickly on to the next step. Something we're going to talk about today, rapport and trust. Just one step away from peak rep, the very top of the stairway, behavioral change and influence. I'm including a graphic of the stairway model in today's show notes. Check it out. It's good to have beside you just to see where you are with your customers in your territory and what do you need to do to get to that next step. So let's look at the word rapport for a second. What's the definition? A close and harmonious relationship in which the people or groups concerned understand each other's feelings or ideas. There's the fruit of being empathetic there, by the way and communicate well. I love this quote by Neil Strauss, rapport equals trust plus comfort. 
Well, how did you get there? You got there by making an intentional, non-manipulative investment in the previous step, empathy, asking questions, getting into the other person's frame over a period of time. There's no shortcuts on this stairway. And then you wake up and boom, you've almost reached peak rep. You've got rapport and trust with the customer sitting across from you. Now, the rapport part, I think we all understand is fairly obvious, right? You baby step, you do the work being empathetic. People are going to feel comfortable around you and you're going to have that exchange going on, that rapport. But rapport has a necessary component of the other word on this step, trust. So here's your takeaway for the day, Device Nation. You reach that level with your customer where you've done the work and now they trust you. Well, don't ever, 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 Two hours later. Ever, 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 ever do anything to lose it. A good friend of mine was in a case one time that went completely sideways. And when they got out of the room, the surgeon looked at him and said, You know what? You're only as good as your last case. And that last case sucked. Unfortunately, my friend lost all of his business with that surgeon on that fateful day. It's not funny at all, but those words live on as a teachable moment. So put your finger on that for just a second. Many years ago, I was in the first case of the day, and a lot of drama was going on over in the corner of the room. And when it bubbled over into my side of the room, I was to find out that a competitive rep's instruments would not be ready for the next case. Why? According to the staff, the rep had not properly tagged the instruments from the case the day before to make sure Central Sterile knew to process them for the second case. This particular rep showed up at the hospital 15 minutes later and protested, I absolutely did tag it. Here was the tag all along. See? Now, there was only one little problem with that is that everybody else that had been in there that morning that passed those instruments knew there never was a tag on it, and this tag only magically appeared after he walked through Central Sterile. So here's a little word of advice to you young guns out there, bonus feature. I passed his stack of instruments, and I knew that he had decidedly not tagged that set, but I made a conscious decision to keep my mouth shut and not shovel coal into that raging fire. I think it would have looked very self-serving and unseemly, So resist the urge to go grab your own shovel if your competitor is intent on digging themselves into a hole. But I digress. I will never forget one of the scrub techs got particularly agitated when she realized the flim-flam of the retroactive labeling of trays to cover the rep's rear end. She said, I will never trust that again. It didn't stop there as she would spend the rest of the day telling everyone within earshot, you ever work with somebody like that? What a lying sack of this particular rep was. Well, you know what? You're only as good as your last case. And for this particular rep on this particular day, it sucked, right? Well, listeners of Device Nation don't want it to suck for us. So what we're going to do is protect our name at all costs on this behavioral influence stairway step. Because you know what? You trip up right here and you will find yourself right back at the landing irregardless of how many deposits you've made into that relational ATM machine. I saw a great article the other day about a dual mobility liner that had a ceramic head in it and they impacted it, but it was canted just a little bit on the trunnion and it fractured. And trust is much like that ceramic head. I mean, you could conceivably repair it, 
with enough time and resources, but you know it's going to be difficult and it really is never going to be the same. And we all need that in the back of our head when we even think about stretching the truth to cover our rear end because we made a mistake or got a little fast and loose with the implant charges. Why, yes, we used an entire box of K-wires on that periplate or looking at the ceiling tiles and thinking, you know, if I just hid some inventory up there, the hospital would reorder and I think I can make quota this month. Resist the urge. Look, I've made just about every mistake there is to be made in this business. And I can tell you firsthand, you can recover from most all of them. But just know that the landing of this stairway is littered with the corpses of reps who got loosey-goosey right here on this step. Take care of the truth, and it will take care of you, my friends. Well, I am so excited to introduce our next guest, Dr. Joseph McGinley, founder and CEO at McGinley Orthopedic Innovations and interventional radiologist. You're going to learn what this exploding subspecialty is all about, as well as the truly exciting stuff going on at his practice and his company. So let's give a great big device nation welcome to Dr. Joseph McGinley. Great. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you having me here today and, and look forward to uh, chatting with you. Dr. McGinley, I really appreciate you coming on the show and accepting our invitation to be the official diagnostic radiologist for Device Nation. And I can't wait to ask you about Alcatraz, McGinley Innovations, Botox. But first, let's go back to Norristown. What put you on the path to medicine? <laughs> well, you know, that's a long story. I don't know how much time we have here today. But, uh, you know, uh, back, uh, I lived on the East Coast and you know, I was very interested in math and science, and uh, you know, my path to medicine began in college, actually. So, you know, I was a mechanical engineer uh, working on biomechanics. I was working with a, a good colleague and friend, Dr. Scott Cozen, who's a hand surgeon back east, and he really inspired me. I mean, his, his approach to medicine, his approach to science and research was was second to none. And you know, I was exposed to the biomechanics of the human body, and as an engineer, I was just amazed. I mean. You know, as perfect of a mechanical system as you can get, the, the body really mimics uh, those mechanical uh, systems. And we see it in development quite a bit. There's a lot of uh, research and development around mimicking animals and, and other insects and their biomechanic motion. And then we, you know, sort of copy that or try to emulate that as much as possible to help uh, develop new products, new technology. So, you know, for me, it was a very, uh, you know, lights on moment where, I said, wow, this, this is amazing. This is exactly what I like. This is exactly what I want to do. So I spent time with Dr. Cozen uh, in his research lab. And you know, as they say, the rest is history. I went on and uh, did a master's in mechanical engineering focused on biomechanics and then uh, went to Temple University and did an MD-PhD uh, and continued working with uh, Dr. Cozen in orthopedics that entire time. Why radiology? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I was asking myself that question when, you know, I was finishing up uh, uh, med school and looking at residencies. Uh, to be honest, I was uncertain at the time. I actually applied for both orthopedics and radiology and interviewed for both, and I actually mixed my match. Uh, so I, I had alternated radiology and orthopedics um, uh, in my match, and it was a tough decision. I, I really liked biomechanics and orthopedics, but what attracted me to radiology was the technology. Uh, by far, radiology uh, is the most rapidly growing uh, area of medicine, and that includes interventional radiology. And you get exposure to the latest and greatest technologies on a rapid basis. So 
ultimately that's what sort of persuaded me to lean uh, to radiology. But really, I always had an eye on, on biomechanics and orthopedics. And uh, I saw it as a, as a great marriage of specialties and technologies, especially as these things merge together, where we're now seeing minimally invasive approaches dominate the, the startup market and dominate the new product developments. I have heard more about interventional radiology in the last two years than I think I've heard in the previous 40 uh, <laughs> what is going on in that space and what exactly is an interventional radiologist? Yeah, you know, even interventional radiology is uh, diversifying. So, um, you know, what I practice is essentially interventional musculoskeletal radiology. Uh, but, you know, if you look historically, interventional radiology has always been at the forefront of the development and innovation. Uh, cardiology, for example, a lot of the first uh, coronary angiograms, uh, cardiac, uh, cardiology, cardiac stents, that was all radiology, interventional radiology. Same thing when the uh, percutaneous aortic valve uh, came out. Uh, interventional radiology was highly involved in that. Uh, you know, treatments of, of various cancers, uh, all type of uh, radio RF ablation, cryoablation, all these type of technologies and, and products were developed through interventional radiology. Now, as they mature, sometimes they'll migrate over uh, to the specialty itself like interventional cardiology. So that developed, you know, after the initial product development in radiology. I think we're seeing that in orthopedics right now. And what we're seeing, as I mentioned, is interventional musculoskeletal radiology, where we're now developing and we're getting the tools necessary to treat orthopedic problems percutaneously and with imaging guidance. And, you know, medicine, you know, we, we all make the oath, uh, do no harm meaning you know, we should always try the uh, least invasive, safest procedures first and then advance them from there. And, and this is just you know, an outgrowth from that type of mentality. Uh, so it's really exciting to be part of that, and it's really exciting to see these uh, tools become available. Well, let's talk about your practice for a minute. What does it look like these days, and what's on the menu? <laughs> well, the practice is busy and uh, hectic. Uh, you know, I, I uh, essentially started my own clinical practice. I, I uh, was part of a radiology group for many years, and just because of growth and, and diversification of, of what I was doing, I ended up starting my own clinical pra practice in October uh, of this past year. And really, the focus is on minimally invasive treatment of orthopedic problems. And, you know, we took a risk. We weren't sure what that would look like. Uh, there's not many practices worldwide that focus on this. Um, but, you know, it, one of the best decisions I've ever made. We've been able to focus on patient care. We've been able to get access to more technology, more products. And really, uh, what we look at it are, you know, some people call it non-operative orthopedics. But really what it is, is orthopedic medicine or interventional orthopedics. And, you know, we see patients, we evaluate patients, and, you know, we recommend minimally invasive or conservative options. If they need surgery, great. We partner with our orthopedic surgeon colleagues and, and get them in touch with the right individuals and, and get them to that point. But surgery should be the last resort. You should always start with conservative care first you know, therapy, uh, uh, NSAIDs, uh, uh, RICE technique, and then move from there where you're uh, moving that along to interventional procedures. And then surgery should be the last resort in all those uh, cases. And, you know, we're meeting a need. We're filling that gap where previously a lot of these patients may have been managed uh, by their primary care doc. And then when they exhausted the conservative care, they sent them to the orthopedic surgeon. And, you know, the options are a little bit more, you know, limited as far as interventional procedures. 
uh, with technology development, we're seeing that change. We're seeing that gap uh, blossom. And we're seeing all type of new technologies and procedures that are available. When we look at the interventions that can be done from your brick and mortar, what all can you do from that home base these days? <laughs> Quite a bit. Uh, you know, uh, what I usually tell patients is if they're not uh, immediately in a car accident outside of our building, we can probably help them with an orthopedic <laughs> issue. <laughs> and, that's good. Uh, and, you know, all joking aside, that, that's really a, a factual statement. But when we see patients, We'll see them really for any orthopedic uh, problem and, you know, uh, classic uh, problems such as arthritis up to, you know, tendinopathy, sports injuries, compartment syndrome, carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, we have treatments for all these things now uh, through a, a minimally invasive approach. Are they perfect? No, uh, nothing in medicine is perfect. But, you know, again, if you could save the patient um, the risk of surgery, if you can save them time, you can save them money then really that that's the correct approach. It's less invasive. It's, it's the way to do it. So, you know, at our clinic, at the McGinley Clinic, uh, when patients come in, first thing we do is, you know, uh, listen to the patient first. But more importantly, uh, the second uh, assessment is the biomechanics. And we focus quite a bit on biomechanics. And this is where I merge in my background in mechanical engineering. You know, we don't always just make assumptions that if the left knee hurts, the problem's the left knee. Uh, because, you know, the, the left knee is connected to the left femur, it's connected to the left hip, right. <laughs> connected to the pelvis, to the right leg. And, you know, the problem could be on the contralateral side. And if you don't look at the full biomechanic structure of the lower extremities, you may miss the actual problem. Sure, the left knee hurts, but the problem could be a malalignment or it could be a leg length discrepancy or some other injury on the contralateral side causing it. So, you know, we have a unique uh, approach to assessing the patient. And then from there, you know, the treatment offerings are, are variable, but really, um, uh, without exaggerating, most orthopedic problems, we do have at least some type of way to address it non-operatively. A couple of procedures caught my eye. Uh, one, I just feel smarter saying it, hydrodissection. <laughs> what does that <laughs> procedure offer patients? Yeah, that's a fancy name for a very, very simple procedure that, you know, can uh, really uh, change the patient's life <laughs> instantaneously. And right. uh, really all it is is putting fluid between two structures. Uh, you know, a lot of times we'll see this, uh, the two main areas we see it with are post-operative scars. Well, post-operative scars for any reason. Uh, so, you know, when you operate on a patient, you close the skin, you get scar tissue. Sometimes that scar tissue will anchor down to the deeper tissues underneath and the patients can have pain and problems associated with that. So really all we do is, is place a needle between that tissue plane and then put a fluid, uh, typically just your typical numbing medicines, lidocaine uh, or a similar substance, and then you dissect the tissue. So it's hydro, meaning fluid dissection, and you separate the tissues. That in and of itself can give patients significant relief. It takes less than five minutes and very easy procedure. The other um, application for that is when there's um, you know chronic nerve irritation, uh, or neuropathy, let's just say ulnar nerve if they have an entrapment syndrome, uh, sometimes the nerve sheath can adhere down onto the uh, onto the nerve itself. So you can do a hydrodissection along the nerve sheath and essentially free up uh, the neurofascicles and, and allow the nerve to glide more smoothly. Um, that works extremely well. There's several published studies out there on that. Uh, again, another five-minute technique that can you know change the patient's day. Cellular biological therapy. I've seen applications just popping up left and right for this. What indications work best in your hands? Yeah, cell, cell therapies is, uh, you know, again, 
depending on uh, your opinion on these things, uh, can have negative and positive connotations. And under cell therapies, you find PRP and stem cells or BMAC or uh, the similar substances. But PRP stem cells are the you know, sort of uh, routine names for that. And there's different ways to go about it. There's different techniques, different kits, different approaches. But without getting into detail in there, what these two treatments do is facilitate the body's own healing response. That's really the basic response. We're not doing anything magical except taking cells that normally repair uh, human tissue and placing it into an area that is not as robust as to, to repair. So for example, if you injure um, a tendon or a ligament, there's not a lot of blood flow to those structures. So when they get injured, uh, they have uh, an inefficient repair process internally within your body. And it's really hard to treat those. You know, you go through therapy, uh, cortisone, things like that. But really, none of that actually helps heal the tissue. What we do is just facilitate what the body would normally do and take the cells, typically PRP in that situation, platelet-rich plasma. Uh, so we do a blood draw. We take the platelets from the blood, and then we inject them directly into the structure that's abnormal, say a tendon or a ligament. And then those uh, platelets will break open, they'll degranulate, release growth factors, which then stimulate a repair process right there in the tissues. So, you know, again, we're just doing what the body can do on its own. Um, same thing with stem cells. Stem cells are sort of the big brother of PRP. We typically will use stem cells uh, when we have a little bit more pathology. Let's just say arthritis, where you have cartilage degeneration, cartilage loss. Uh, what the stem cells do is essentially fill in those cracks and crevices in the cartilage and help seal the cartilage. And typically what forms uh, is a fibrocartilage, uh, which again makes the surface a bit smoother. I mean, that's that's the generic way of describing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the analogy I use with patients is it's you think of it as a road uh, with potholes. So the road with potholes, you're not pulling up the road and putting in a new surface. Uh, what you're doing is is putting asphalt in and filling the cracks and crevices. You're filling the potholes. And that's what essentially stem cells are doing for arthritis. They're filling in those potholes in the cartilage, making the surface smoother. By doing that, you decrease the pain and inflammation within the underlying bony structures. P.T. Barnum became synonymous in the mid-1800s with promoting hoaxes. And I know many orthopods that I've worked with over the years have expressed concerns about the uh, the PRP Barnums out there. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you combat that snake oil perception that they create? Well, I mean, data. Uh, you know, when I, when I first start doing any of these new techniques and new procedures, uh, no offense, I, I don't believe the sales reps when they come in and tell me what these things do. Sure. Um, you know, I think they're providing the information that they have, but I'm the one treating the patient. So for all of these things, PRP stem cells, when I first started doing them, I had access to imaging studies. So uh, we would do no charge follow-ups uh, to the patients, and I would watch the change over time, and then I would also assess the patient outcomes over time. And, you know, I started, I, I picked like five or six patients as a cohort, followed them for about a year. And only after I had that, those data points, did I actually open this up on a larger scale to patients. Um, so I'm very data driven. Every single one of my patients, whether they come in just for a cortisone injection or come in for a stem cell treatment, we follow them uh, with follow-up phone calls for several years, every single patient. Um, so I have thousands of data points, and you know we're we're in the process of writing up some of these, or and have been uh, for the past several years. So you know we we're data driven in that situation, and you know we're looking at it. The other 
the other thing I usually will throw back to the surgeons is where are the long-term outcomes uh, on the surgical procedures? You know, we, we have anecdotal data and, and sometimes there's good studies, but, you know, we're not seeing double-blinded studies for uh, a lot of surgical procedures and outcomes. So the gold standard is not being held up to the same standard uh, as these new cell procedures because of perceived bias. Now, they do have um, some, uh, you know, credibility in these statements. And with the cell treatments in, in particular, there is a lot of bad medicine out there. Um, there's a lot of people that are doing these incorrectly. There's a lot of people that are doing them for uh, reasons that I would consider unethical. Um, and, and that pollutes the field. So those of us that are taking the scientific approach uh, are sort of being lumped in as a whole sure. uh, with an area that has some negative connotation. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at studies, when you're looking at publications, especially on cell therapies, I always go to the method section and the method section will, you know, tell you the truth as far as whether it's a good study or not a good study and, and data driven from there. So that, that's our approach to it. You know, I respect their opinion on that. And uh, yes, you always have to make sure when something new is coming out that it is safe, that it is good for the patient. Sometimes these things work, sometimes they don't. But for PRP and stem cells, what I've seen over the years, I'm absolutely convinced. I actually had one done myself, and I know the results personally. So My wife has had a painful journey with a pretty common malady, uh, plantar fasciitis. If she was in your office there in Casper, Wyoming, what yeah. options would be discussed? Yeah, so, you know, again, I, I would first want to know what has already been done. Assuming all the conservative care has been done, orthotics, you know, stretching PT, uh, even injections, uh, cortisone injections, uh, assuming all that has been done and failed, you know, what we would talk about as the next step would be ESWT or extracorporeal shockwave therapy combined with PRP. And that usually be our next step in this process. Um, we've seen excellent results. That was, in fact, the first cohort that I followed when I first started doing PRP. And I got sent the worst patients, ones that have failed everything. Right. And, you know, these are these patients, everything else, ones that are the hardest ones to treat. And we had excellent results with that combined therapy. So, you know, again, assuming everything else has been tried and failed, um, I would recommend ESWT and PRP uh, in that particular situation. Uh, we're seeing success rates on a single treatment of that somewhere around 85, 90%. That's the sonic wave device they use for kidney stones, right? Yeah, just a little bit of a different uh, power uh, level in it. Uh, but essentially what ESWT does, and there's published studies on this in plantar fasciitis, it, it causes microtrauma to the tissue. So uh, it has a focused high-energy sound beam. Uh, that targets the plantar fascia, uh, you sort of pummel the tissue, and it creates um, a microvascularization, uh, which by itself facilitates repair. But then when you inject PRP, we typically do that about a week later. When those cells degranulate, they now have that microvascularization to further stimulate healing within those tissues. Speaking of sound, I see ultrasound besides your name a lot. Uh, what does that technology bring to an intervention practice? Oh, it gives me 3D vision into a patient. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that is my uh, tool of choice for pretty much everything I do. Yeah, I, I trained classically uh, when I was in uh, musculoskeletal radiology. We did a lot of uh, fluoroscopic or x-ray guided procedures. Uh, but then when I came out in the practice, uh, you know, I, I started to learn and become much better uh, with ultrasound guided procedures. And now about 99% of what I do is ultrasound guided. And for me, you know, it literally does give me a 3D visualization into the patient from any angle, any position. It allows me to, you know, manipulate the, the patient's anatomy and see what happens in real time. 
you know, a lot of times a patient comes in and says, you know, and I do this weird maneuver, I feel a clicker pop. Well, if you send them for the MRI, they're laying there flat on the table. You know, they're not doing that weird thing and, and you're not going to see the problem. Right. So what I say is great. Let's, you know, let's put the probe on there and do whatever weird thing you do. And then let's see what happens. And a lot of times you'd be amazed at how much pathology can be identified uh, by doing dynamic manipulation and dynamic assessment of patients. And then taking that a step further, uh, when you're doing procedures, uh, it just gives you that level of precision that's not available, you know, through anatomic assessment and, and traditional palpation. Uh, with ultrasound, uh, you see everything. You see the anatomy. You see the areas that you should not be hitting or going through. Uh, you can avoid anatomy. Uh, but more importantly, when you're doing injections, uh, you can put it, put the injection exactly where you want it, uh, within, you know, a sub-millimeter accuracy. Uh, you can do the injections. That's really important for PRP and stem cells because they work best when those injections are done exactly where the abnormality occurs. You know, to give you a little example of that, um, I do PRP treatments of meniscal injuries. Um, that's challenging because, you know, again, if you have a meniscal tear, uh, we're placing the needle into the tear and injecting fluid. Now, if you're not comfortable where that needle's at and you inject in the wrong area, you can actually cause a tear yourself. Uh, so, you know, I, I really do depend on ultrasound to make sure I'm in the right spot and I'm comfortable doing those high-precision injections. How much of a challenge is it on the reimbursement side with procedures like this? Oh, man. Uh, insurance companies are sometimes the bane of our existence sure. in medicine. Uh, you know, it, it, reimbursement lags behind technology universally. And it's unfortunate because patients get caught in the middle on this. You see it all the time. Uh, insurance will easily pay for, you know, a, a $90,000 joint replacement, uh, but they won't cover, you know, a couple thousand dollars stem cell injection. Um, I understand why I understand the reasons, but nonetheless, there there needs to be um, a way to bridge that gap because, again, patients are the ones that are losing that situation. Uh, they end up having to pay out of pocket for something that, you know, is for some patients better, safer, and, and can lead to the same outcome. Um, so insurance can be challenging, especially with the new techniques. At our clinic, um, you know, half the procedures are covered, half aren't. Uh, if it's not covered, we try to determine a fair price based on time and, and what type of materials are being used. Um, so, yeah, we're always trying to do our best uh, to understand the economics of it. Um, I try to work with the insurance companies. You know, we're collecting the data on our patients. You know, I approach the insurance companies. I talk to them about it. Uh, you know, a little funny side story on that. Um, I'm the past president of the Wyoming Medical Society. And when I was at one of our uh, annual meetings, one I won't say which insurance company, but one of the executives for the insurance companies was sitting next to me. And, you know, we were just having a casual conversation at dinner. And he leaned over. He said, hey, you know, I've got to make an appointment to see you. He said, I think I need a, a PRP injection of my knee. So I smiled and leaned over. I said, just to let you know, your insurance is probably not going to pay for that. So, uh, you know, he said touche on that. But, uh, you know, the, the insurance executives are aware of this and they're they're searching it out, yet not providing this type of coverage for their patients. So, you know, we need physicians and, and more importantly, patients to speak up and, and ask for this. And I always tell patients to call their insurance companies and try to dispute all these charges um, and try to at least keep their voice out there to be heard. Uh, they can also reach out to their elected officials. Uh, 
uh, their physicians, their community leaders, and, and do the same thing. It takes work, but uh, as, as with anything good, if you put in enough effort, change will come. A lot of surgeons that listen to the show have seen their fees under attack for quite some time while we're talking about reimbursement. Uh, any advice to them on maybe adding some of these procedures to their office to, to try to offset some of those challenges on the other side? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't look at it as an offset to revenue as much as an offset to patient uh, care offerings. Um, patients are much more savvy than they used to be. They're going to look this stuff up. And I hear it all the time where patients will go into a surgeon. They'll, you know, have an issue with their knee arthritis. They'll say they need a joint replacement. They'll ask about the cell therapy and, and the surgeons will just outright dismiss them. Almost instantaneously when they do that, the patient loses confidence in that physician across the board. Even if they're the best physician in the, on the planet, once they dismiss the patient's concerns, uh, they lose credibility. And even if, uh, even if they don't agree or believe in the uh, procedure, um, you know, having the conversation and understanding is usually helpful. Now, on the offsets of care, um, I would say most practices should uh, offer it and, and see for themselves what the results are. Uh, don't, you know, trust what your society is telling you or your colleagues. Um, just, you know, do it in a small cohort of patients and, and check out the outcomes. It's pretty impressive. On the revenue side, yeah, it, it does offer some uh, uh, variability in revenue sources. But more importantly, it offers uh, an enhanced practice model uh, to provide more care uh, for your patients. On the reimbursement side, yeah, it's unfortunate. You know, we we, we as physicians are the ones that care most about the patients and looked at as a low-hanging fruit. A lot of times because physicians don't speak up. Um, if physicians would say enough is enough, and you know, why is the patient's bill, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and our fees like three hundred dollars? <laughs> like, where's all that going? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's a lot missing there in the middle, and and patients are aware of that. They see this big bill and like, oh man, the surgeon's getting ninety thousand dollars. Well, no, that's not actually true whatsoever, uh, and it's the surgeons, the ones that is putting all the efforts in to to make sure the patient's cared for. I mean, you see it across the board with insurance. I can't tell you how many hours a week I, I spend fighting with insurance companies just to get imaging studies for my patients. So they'll call and say, no, we don't need that MRI is not needed. And, you know, what I feel like saying is, have you seen the patient? Have you examined them? Have you looked at their x-rays? Uh, have you reviewed their history? How in the world can you in 30 seconds tell me how to practice medicine uh, without seeing the patient? You know, they do that intentionally. So then we're like, you know, it's a busy day. I don't have time to call about these studies. Uh, I'll just tell the patient the insurance denied it. Um, that's what they want you to do. But, you know, we as physicians need to speak up more. Uh, again, uh, reach out to our elected officials. They, If patients and physicians get into the ear of the elected officials, these practices with insurance will stop. And, you know, there will be fair reimbursement, there will be fair coverage, and our time won't be wasted as much. But it takes effort, it takes time, it takes collaboration with the medical societies to do that. So so how can the audience learn more about your practice and, and what procedures that, that have your interest these days? Yeah, so our, our website is pretty robust, um, both with information and videos. So it's themcginleyclinic.com. Uh, on social media, uh, we have everything under McGinley Innovations. Uh, so either of those would be great places to go to it. Uh, you can just Google search it. 
uh, just type in uh, McGinley in Wyoming, and I'm pretty much the only one that pops up. So <laughs> that's also uh, that's also an easy way to do it. But uh, the McGinleyClinic.com is the best resource. Uh, we have a lot of information on our website, patient testimonials, background information on all the procedures we do. I am designing, as we speak, a bumper sticker for you that says, uh, whoever dies with the most patents wins. Uh, over 135 <laughs> design and utility patents. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. That's, uh, that's my uh, second company, McGinley Orthopedics, which is a startup medical device company. And uh, yeah, we, we have some pretty uh, cool technologies we've been developing over the years, uh, again, with uh, patient focus in mind. But, uh, you know, as an engineer, I, I you know, I love the patents. I, that's, uh, uh, it shows the uh, dedication of our team and, and the innovativeness of, of what we're doing. Um, you know, a lot of those patents are already issued. So those are not just ones we filed. Those are ones that we've received. And uh, that number keeps growing. Uh, you know, uh, who knows where we'll end up. But uh, the growth of the patent number just continues on for sure. Is there any one of those in particular that kind of jumps out at you that I'm <laughs> so excited about that one? Well, it's our core technology. I mean, that's how it all started. That's our IntelliSense uh, technology, our IntelliSense drill. And that's where this whole journey started. My my clinic vision, the orthopedic startup company, the education company, it, it really all started with that one patent and idea. And, you know, it goes back to where we started the conversation with uh, my mentor, uh, Dr. Scott Cozen. And that's a really fun story. So that you know, I, I was working in his research lab and uh, we went out to dinner for a research meeting and uh, it wasn't quite himself. He's telling me about a, a case that he heard about where it was a young 16-year-old who fractured her wrist and they ended up uh, fixing the fracture with a volar plate or a plate, you know, along the palm side of the wrist. And one of the screws was a little bit too long, so it's poking out the other side of the bone. They took x-rays in the OR, didn't see it, sent the patient home. Uh, the patient ended up uh, tearing uh, one of their structures on the other side of the wrist. They had to come back in, get the plate removed, get the tendon and, and tissues repaired. The patient never really gained full function back. So, you know, at the time I said, man, that's terrible. And he said, you know, it is, uh, but this happens commonly. So we we said, okay, we did essentially a, a failure analysis of why that would happen. And we went through how surgeries are, are performed, actually still being performed. And what it came down to was a mismatch of, technology and precision uh, with what the surgeon's skill sets are. So, you know, the surgeons have been given tools that really haven't changed for decades. Um, you know, if you look back at orthopedic power tools, sure, they're battery operated now, but same same core technology otherwise. And to be honest, if you go to a hardware store, the, the drills there are probably more advanced. Um, so, you know, the surgeon's sort of handcuffed in that situation. So they're solely dependent on tactile sensation to do a very complex procedure. And then not only that, the, the crazy part of it is is how you measure a screw. Uh, you literally put a hook down the hole you just drilled that's only, you know, maybe two millimeter diameter hole. You put a hook down it, try to grab the other side without seeing the other side, and then you read a ruler that's, you know, in an incision or hole <laughs> that you just worked in. Um, so that whole process, when you tell a patient that, they just look at you like you're crazy, like that can't be possible. But that's standard of care. So what we said is, you know, we can make this process better. We can essentially augment the skill set of the surgeon by putting technology in the palm of their hands. So that's where the idea of the IntelliSense came up, is we embedded sensors within the orthopedic power tools 
to augment the surgeon's environment uh, to to make it better. It's just like we use our phones for mapping and and pretty much everything. But you know, we can probably read a map and get to where we need to go. But who does that anymore, right? We just type it in our phone and it tells us where to go. Same thing with the IntelliSense drill. Why would you take the time uh, to use an antiquated device to measure a screw when with our technology, it can tell you instantaneously and more accurately what size screw you need? It just makes sense. And, you know, we that was the first idea. That was the first patent. And really, everything blossomed from there. Well, I understand the value to the patient. I understand the value to the surgeon. But what are the reps supposed to do without all those screw in and outs on the charge sheet? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> we need that revenue, doctor. <laughs> we'll pretend we didn't hear that one there, but you know, um, that that is you just got at the core root of the cost savings. So the cost savings is a big one there. Cost savings yeah. to the patient, insurance company, and hospital. Now, for the reps, you guys are covered because the drill bits are single-use disposable, and and you know, uh, we have plate and screws now too, and and everything else. So, you know, you, you guys are still taken care of and, and we got your time covered in there. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I'm just joking. I think that's a really cool idea. I remember a wrist X fix years ago called the wrist jack. And that word immediately came to mind when I saw the lever action distal radius plate. What was the inspiration behind that very cool design? Yeah, so this came from one of our uh, surgeon partners, Dr. Dan Zotolo uh, and his uh, uh, team. Um, they had this uh, idea and approached us and, uh, because we're an innovative orthopedic company and, and they were familiar with our intelligence drill, you know, thought that we could, you know, make this a reality. And when I first, uh, listened to them and heard about the concept, I, I said, this is a great idea. Uh, right now, if you have a, a distal radius or wrist fracture, uh, again, it's a somewhat manual process and it's very dependent on the surgeon's skill set. Um, you know, they, uh, put the plate down, they typically lever it down, and that's where you get your alignment uh, of your articular surface or, or those distal fragments. Uh, we took a different approach and said, well, you know, none of us are perfect. Uh, how can we use technology to make this better? And what we ended up doing is instead of having a two-dimensional flat plate construct, which is standard right now, we went to a three-dimensional construct, which helps realign and support those fragments. Now, it, it seems simple when you watch the video and see the cases, but it took us several years to develop that technology. Um, it was actually fairly hard to, to make that a reality. Uh, and the way it works is you put blades essentially into the fragments and those blades attach to the plate. And then you have an adjustment screw, which will essentially lower or raise those blades to whatever position you want. So under live fluoroscopy or x-ray, uh, you can dial in exactly where you want those fragments to be. Once everything's dialed in, you lock your screws, and then the patient has near-perfect alignment, volar tilt is good, and uh, you know, as you know, that can prevent some of the complications after these surgeries, uh, such as range of motion problems and early arthritis. So you know, we've seen great success. Uh, this We're still very early on. We've got 20 of these plates in patients, but so far, the results have been incredible. So if a rep or a surgeon listening has a million-dollar idea or existing IP, can y'all assist in partnering with them if it's a good fit for, for your organization? Oh, yeah. I love this question. The best idea comes from those that are on the front line. 
um, you know, as a, as an engineer and entrepreneur myself, I, I respect anyone that, uh, is trying to change things for the better in their field. And we offer varying services for that as well. So we have a concept to production, um, uh, arm within our company. Uh, we have our own manufacturing facility. We can touch on that, but all of the products that we make essentially are made in house at our own facility, uh, just down the road here in, in Wyoming. Um, so we, we have the capability of prototyping all the way up to full production. So if someone comes in and they say, Hey, I have this idea, you know, I, I just want to get a patent submitted, or I just want to get a prototype. Can, can we work with you for that? Uh, the answer is yes. We can make it as simple as contract services saying this is what we charge per hour. You know, we can get it done for you. Uh, if the idea is really good and they want us to sort of partner with them uh, with the growth, now that, that has to sort of fit our, uh, model a little bit internally for revenue and finances, but uh, we do the, do that as well. And the, and the distal radius plates, um, that's where that idea came from. Uh, we said, this looks like it's good to have in-house. Uh, we worked with the team, worked out a deal and developed that in-house. So pretty much everything from start to finish, uh, we can assist with in any way, shape or form. And manufacturing facility is very high tech. Uh, we recently, just a week ago, received um, aerospace certification at that facility, which is actually higher than medical manufacturing quality systems. Wow, that's exciting. I will include in the show notes a link for audience members to check that out and uh, check out some of these cool devices that you've already got in the pipeline. I noticed on the site that you have an education course coming up in San Diego, and I believe uh, another educational opportunity at the academy. Tell us about it. Um, yeah, that, this is really the part I enjoy in medicine most is is working with other physicians and, and uh, teaching about the services that we offer. Um, so our, our course uh, is through our education arm of our company. We do that annually. We usually do it in the same city as the um, uh, orthopedic academy meeting. Uh, so we'll be in San Diego just before the orthopedic academy meeting. Uh, offering a hands-on ultrasound and ultrasound intervention course. Now, we cover pretty much all the procedures I do, but we have diverse faculty. So I have um, faculty from various specialties that teach at our course, including orthopedic surgery, uh, PM&R, uh, sports med, uh, family medicine, uh, interventional radiology. Uh, um, and again, we have a, a diverse faculty group to offer different perspectives on how these things look uh, within their specific specialty. Uh, so we do have that the two days before AOS. You know, some of the things we talk about there are the procedures you mentioned. Uh, in addition, we have other, we bring in technology partners that uh, fit what we're talking about. Um, another one that is pretty cool technology uh, is a standing weight-bearing CT scanner uh, called a high-rise, uh, and that's made by a curve beam out in Pennsylvania. Again, fits very well with our uh, clinical practice. Uh, we were, I think, the second site in the U.S. with that technology in hand. And what that allows you to do, as I mentioned, if you have left knee pain, maybe it's your right hip that's the problem. Maybe it's the right knee. So by standing and weight-bearing, you're putting the patient in the anatomic position that caused the problem. And then you can see everything precisely. It's extremely low-dose radiation, very easy to use. Uh, we have other uh, partners that we'll have there with us. Uh, Sometimes functional knee brace or functional bracing companies, again, trying to manipulate and change the mechanics, um, ultrasound-guided uh, carpal tunnel releases, uh, you name it, the, the latest in minimally invasive technology and assessment we try to highlight uh, during our course. 
We love technology and we love real-time displays on Device Nation. What is going on in your goggles <laughs> with McGinley AR? Yeah, again, um, all, all good products have a good story with them. And uh, this is one where we design something out of necessity. And what you're referring to is our augmented reality for ultrasound system. Um, I, I volunteer a lot with students and, and education in Henry at Wyoming. I was uh, volunteering with the engineering department. Uh, they had a student group that was working on augmented and virtual reality applications in medicine. And, you know, when I first met with them, uh, what they're working on was fairly gimmicky. You know, you have an MRI just floating there in the room. You can turn it, look at it, things like that. Pretty cool. I mean, if you're showing a patient, that's pretty cool. But from a practical standpoint, you know, I, I, it was minor. Um, but, you know, they, they were working on it. And I was helping them. I was advising them. Literally that same week in my clinic, um, I had to do an ankle injection on an obese patient in a wheelchair uh, who was uh, quadriplegic. And it was just a simple steroid injection. So when they came in the room, my staff said, well, do you want us to get her on the table or how do you want to do this? I said, no, I don't want to inconvenience the patient or anything like that. Um, I said, I'll just get on the floor and do the injection there. Um, so that's what I did. I got on the floor. Uh, I was doing an ankle injection with my head like cranked 180 degrees looking up at my ultrasound screen, like sweating, like <laughs> uncomfortable. And in right. that moment, I was like, man, I wish I had that gimmicky AR thing. <laughs> I said, this would be perfect at this point in time. Uh, so right after I was done that procedure, I called the team back at the university. I said, listen, I got a great idea. Can we make this work for my ultrasound machine? Uh, I told them about the case and they said, yeah, I don't see why not. One year later, we had a prototype. Uh, six to eight months later, we partnered with the university and commercialized that. And more recently, we just made the thing wireless about a month ago. Uh, we're now using the HoloLens 2 and have this augmented reality system that displays your imaging in real time right over the patient. No wires, nothing. It's incredible. It's it, I can't really express for me as a practicing interventionalist how life-changing that technology has been for me. And then the cool factor, the patients, I have all this cool stuff there, right? All these patents and all this other stuff, way more advanced than this augmented reality. But the patients always comment on the augmented reality. So when I put it on and I'm doing the procedure, I'd say 90% of patients will make a comment. And as you know, patients usually don't comment on products that are being used on them uh, in, in procedures. But this one, they, they make a point to do it. And some of the comments have been funny. They're like, oh, yeah, that's like Tony Stark from the Avengers and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and some of them were like, you know, I forget sometimes to tell them because I'm just used to it. So I'm like they're pointing at a virtual menu and they look at me like, you know, I'm crazy or something like that. Uh, so then I explain to them what I'm doing and everything else. So, you know, it helps with the patients because they have more confidence in you as well, believe it or not, because you're using this cool technology. Uh, you're using the latest technology. But for me, more importantly, the ergonomics of it, you know, with my head turned in all these weird positions over time, obviously that leads to uh, problems, uh, you know, with your neck and muscles, things like that. Having this type of system, you know, it should be good to go for the rest of my career. My practice wouldn't last a day because I would put those goggles on and find some space ray toy gun pointed at the patient and say, now, look, you're just going to have to trust me. <laughs> well, you know, the other joke I'll use with patients on that, too, is like, oh, what do you see in there? I said, oh, don't mind me. I said, I'm just watching an instructional video on how to do this procedure. So, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, so they usually get a kick out of that as well. But uh, yeah, it, it is fun having these things. And, and that's commercially available. So, you know, uh, we uh, we sell that as part of our uh, product line. And and a portion of that goes back to the university and the engineering department. So it's 
really nice all around. And uh, yeah, the, the patients do love it. That's for sure. Well, Dr. McGinley, you've got some publications out there. And one I'd like to talk about for just a second. Normally, we hear about Botox helping with fine lines and wrinkles, but you discovered an application for it that is most unique. Arm pump. What is it? And what did you discover? Yeah, great question. And uh, arm pump is is probably the smaller uh, uh, market that we're targeting. It's it's exertional compartment syndrome and functional popliteal artery entrapment, essentially uh, calf uh, arm pump in the calf, essentially. Uh, and you know, again, this this is why I practice medicine. Um, when I was uh, early in my career, uh, you know, I was only two or three years out of training. Um, you know, I was seeing uh, patients for sports medicine on a limited basis and. Uh, one patient that got referred to me, I had given a lecture in town here in Casper on uh, functional popliteal artery entrapment. One of the physicians in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, you know, this sounds very familiar to one of the athletes my daughter plays with in soccer. She's an elite athlete. She's, you know, the top player on the team, one of the top players in the state. Um, and, and he said, I don't remember her mentioning this. So I said, yeah, I'll be glad to take a look and we'll see if they have this problem. So the patient came in to see us. Uh, they were diagnosed with a chronic exertional compartment syndrome, essentially arm pump in the calf. And uh, what we were looking for was to see if her symptoms were compartment syndrome or artery entrapment. No one had evaluated for artery entrapment. So what we ended up doing was a stress uh, CT angiogram. So the patient pushed against, at the time we had a tablecloth they would push against to engage their calf muscles. We did a CAT scan. And uh, unfortunately for my uh, diagnostics at the time, uh, she did not have artery entrapment. However, what caught my eye was during the stress phase of imaging, she was compressing her femoral vein in her adductor canal. Now, as we all know, compression of veins is normal when you're exercising. That's how blood gets back to your heart. But it just seemed a bit odd uh, when her vein was compressed. All of her veins down in her calf were distended. Almost looked like she had varicose veins, and she was only 16. So I saw the images. I didn't quite know what to make of it. Uh, so I, I talked to the parents. I told her what I saw, and I said, let me think about it, and I'll get back to you. Um, you know, so it made sense to me that when you look at compartment syndrome, the pain and pressure you get in your calf was being caused by a venous outflow obstruction. I thought, well, that's a, that's a possibility. For this patient, fortunately, she had a single muscle that was compressing uh, that had one nerve that goes to it. So I called them back and I said, listen, I don't know if this is going to work, but I said, I can do a temporary block of that muscle and we can see if the compression relieves and the symptoms go away. They said, great, because we don't want to have surgery. Brought her in, did it, and it was amazing. Symptoms were gone and we tested her. There was no compression. They were all excited. They're like, great, she's fixed. I'm like, no, that, that block is going to wear off here in about 30 minutes and we're going to be back to where we started. But I said, it, it proves the concept. So we did a proof of concept. And I said, well, I don't have an idea on how to treat this yet. Uh, let me think about it. And she went home. And it's just one of those things. I just could not stop thinking about it. And then it came to me. I said, you know, I wonder if we could block that muscle using Botox and if that would get us the same result as the nerve block. And, you know, I know some of the limitations to that, uh, you know, would it need to be repeated indefinitely, things like that. So I, I called the patient's parents back and they fortunately were engineers. And I called them back and said, listen, I have an idea. Don't hang up on me. <laughs> I said, <laughs> um, uh, we can try Botox into that muscle that we blocked and see if that relieves the pressure. Now, they immediately said, OK, great. But isn't that going to wear off? I said, yes, Botox will wear off. I said, however, uh, if we target this specifically, I said, I think with just a couple injections, we can retrain the muscle. 
And this is where my physiology and engineering background came in, is you can use Botox to manipulate muscles. So if you block a, a small portion of a large muscle, the rest of the muscle will sort of pick up the slack for that blocked portion, and you'll develop new muscle memory. So Botox essentially acts like a coach. And it's a simple concept. If you're a runner, baseball pitcher, swimmer, if you have bad form, your trainer or coach will put you through repetitive exercises until you develop new muscle memory and lose that bad form. Essentially, that's what we were doing here with Botox. In this situation, Botox was the coach. So we were manipulating the muscle to change the function of the muscle to not compress on those blood vessels. It was a theory. It was safer than surgery. We called in insurance companies. They said, yeah, no problem. Go ahead. Uh, so we did it. And two weeks later, when Botox kicked in, no symptoms whatsoever. She played a full soccer game that month. First time in two years she was able to do that. Three months later, she ran um, a half marathon in the Bighorn Mountains, which averaged above 10,000 feet. She did it in under two hours, <laughs> which was just incredible. Um, and, you know, from there, the rest is history. So we, we look at Botox as a way, as an incredible way to manipulate muscle function, to sort of adjust the physiology uh, when you have bad form or where you have mechanics that are atypical. Uh, we use it now for, for these uh, entities for compartment syndrome arm pump, but uh, I use it quite a bit more in my musculoskeletal clinic. Whenever there's any type of asymmetry or, or muscular issue, uh, we'll use Botox to help manipulate the function. And we're using Botox generically. You know, they, their marketing is great. It's actually botulinum toxin. There's several toxins out there in addition to Botox, so we should probably make that clarification. But <laughs> right. it's their great marketing that it just slips out all the time. As, yeah. But it really, it's botulinum toxin. Congratulations. That's just uh, amazing when you can take that creative mind and innovative spirit and help a patient get their life back. That's got to be so rewarding. Yeah, that's a fun one. And, you know, we've had a lot of patient engagement from there. Uh, you know, as an athlete myself, uh, when we when this start, first started becoming more mainstream, Runners World magazine actually called me and said, "Hey, one of our uh, uh, subscribers called in and told us about this stuff and said we needed to look into it." So I did an interview with Runners World, and they ended up publishing it in Runners World magazine um, that was facilitated through a patient. And and again, as an athlete getting into Runners World, that's like us publishing in New England Journal of Medicine. So it oh, was yeah, that's big. <laughs> it was pretty cool. And then you've seen the other ones. You know, some of the motorcycle uh, magazines have covered it for Arm Pump for uh, those athletes. And you know, we had Women's Running Magazine, a couple other magazines, sort of pick this up. And those are all facilitated through patients. I was looking at something recently. You've been awarded by the University of Washington School of Medicine the Outstanding Mentor Award. And I was just curious, what does that word mean to you? And does anyone in particular stand out as a great example of that uh, in your life? You know, that that was really humbling. Um, I didn't even know I was nominated. Uh, so I, I'm an adjunct faculty with the University of Washington through the University of Wyoming. And I have medical students with me every summer on research rotations. Uh, right now, I have four medical students rotating with me on summer research rotations. And, and I love to stay involved in education. I love to stay involved in research and and teaching is really a great way to do that. So, you know, I've been in that program for 10 years and, you know, just out of the blue, I received this email saying, congratulations, you you won this award. And they called me and I, you know, I had no idea the student even nominated me. And apparently several of the students wrote recommendations and everything else. And this was the first time um, 
any uh, faculty member through this program receive the award. So this is the first time any of the, uh, it's called a whammy program, but essentially these outreach programs into uh, Wyoming and the surrounding states, this is the first time anyone has received it. And it was just extreme. I, I was at a loss for words uh, when they called me and told me about it. Because, uh, you know, that's that means more than all these other things really combined. Because passing on the knowledge, um, allowing others to innovate, um, get that sort of bugging them for research and science. That's really what it's sure. all about. You know, we don't normally venture out on the third rail of politics on Device Nation, <laughs> but today I feel compelled. Uh, many surgeons have told me that radiologists have the most organized and grassroots supported lobbying arm in Washington, D.C. As a Rad Pack representative for Wyoming, is there any truth to this? And I, I guess part two to that, what have you learned through your experience working the legislative side of medicine? Yeah, you know, I think physicians and medicines misunderstood uh, by a lot of our elected officials. And I don't know if radiology is any different than any of the other organizations. Um, but as you know, you've heard earlier in the conversation, I really feel strongly about physicians being involved. Uh, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? I mean, that's that's a very common <laughs> saying. Um, and and physicians, you know, we don't like that. We don't we don't like that we have to go and participate in lobbying. Uh, you know, we we have this altruistic approach that, you know, we're we're out there taking care of patients, so that should be that should be it. It should speak for itself. But unfortunately, that's not the case, and it's not intentional. It's just that people are busy. Our legislators are busy, um, and, and they don't have time to do all the research on these topics. So, you know, if you're not out there having that conversation with them, and and having those discussions, and letting them know why. You know, some of these technologies are important, why stem cells are important, why PRP is important, why any of this is important. You know, they, they don't have the bandwidth to sort of figure that out on their own. So you have to be your own advocate. Uh, I feel strongly about that. Um, it takes time. It takes time away from your family, friends, things like that. But it, it's important. It's important for your career. It's important for your community. More importantly, it's important for your patients. So you have to be an advocate. And it can be as simple as just being a member of an organization or society. But I'd really encourage all, all of your listeners that they should become involved, no matter what their specialty or practice is, uh, whether they're a physician or not a physician. You should be involved in your professional societies. You'll learn a lot. But more importantly, you'll be able to make a significant difference. You'll be surprised how open our elected officials are to hearing from you and hearing your side of the story. You'll also be surprised at how little they know about what you do. Uh, so if you're not out there uh, uh, conveying the information, you should just assume people don't know what you're doing. I remember my daughter telling me when she was young, if you don't hug me, Dad, somebody else will. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's rough. but <laughs> Yeah, that was good, though. And, and I guess it's true in the political sense, right? Absolutely. Um, if you're not talking to them, somebody else will be. That's right. Um, I walked away from that classic book, Into Thin Air, thinking, why would anybody voluntarily ascend to that altitude. I remember uh, George Mallory's famous quote, because it's there, but <laughs> that wasn't uh, quite satisfying to me. I, I feel like I'm talking to the right person for this. You've climbed four of the seven summits. What comes after because for you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I've done four of them so far and it's still going. And, you know, for me, um, I, I look at it as a personal challenge. And, you know, you, you really don't know what you're capable of until you challenge yourself. It's very easy to get in a comfortable 
path, a comfortable pattern and say, you know, I'm good. You know, I have a good job. I have a good paycheck, um, you know, a good family life uh, and just be content. But if you're content, you're, you're missing out on quite a bit of life. And uh, for me, uh, the physical challenge, uh, it, it really strengthens my uh, mental acuity, to be honest with you, and my ability to handle stress and pressure. Um, you know, when you're on these mountains, sometimes it's life or death. And, you know, you can't just be like, I'm good in my tent. Um, that, that's not going to work. Uh, and, and sometimes it's someone else. You're like, that person's not doing well. I need to help them while also making sure I'm okay. So that that challenge, you just really, it gives you a very clear perceptive on, a perception on what you're capable of doing. And then when you're in stressful situations with medical procedures, it's not a big deal. I mean, there's not really much that can rattle me right now in a medical procedure. And, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that in an arrogant way. I'm just saying, you know, if something comes up, I, I would just go through it in a logical manner. I know what my limitations would be. I know what my weaknesses are. I know when I need help. And I would work through it. And, you know, same thing when problems arise. Uh, there, there's really not a problem that, you know, you can't sort of devise a solution for. Uh, I'm really confident on that. And I may not know what that solution is yet, uh, but I'm sure going to keep trying to work to that. And the mountain climbing really uh, allows you to feel that. And you'll feel pain. You'll you'll feel stress that you've never felt before. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll be in those mental lulls. And you're like, why am I doing this? I could be, you know, back back home, you know, sitting at the pool or something like that at a, at a conference. Um, you know, why am I up here torturing myself, uh, sleeping on rocks? Um, but really, uh, it, it helps strengthen you and it helps show you what your weaknesses are, what your limitations are. The second point of that is it's absolutely beautiful. These um, climbs, you get to see stuff that no one will ever, most people will never have the opportunity to see. Uh, some of the most beautiful landscapes in the world is what you come across. These are inaccessible areas and you just see some of the most amazing things. The people you meet, you know, you meet local people, but then others on the climb um, that share similar passions and desires. Uh, so you get a, a great um, mix of, of different perspectives when you're doing these climbs. So for me, again, stress relief and mental challenges, but, uh, you know, there's quite a bit more than that. And, you know, you don't have to go climb mountains to experience this. Um, just for anyone out there, you know, just try a 5K or something like that and, and push yourself, see what you're capable of doing. Uh, you you will be amazed at the difference it'll make in your life. Which four have you climbed? Um, so I've done the uh, quote unquote easier ones so far. Uh, I started with Kilimanjaro, uh, I then did uh, Mount Elbrus over in Russia. Uh, I did uh, Carson's Pyramid, which was probably the most technical. Uh, that was over in Indonesia. Uh, and then most recently, the hardest of the bunch uh, so far has been Aconcagua down in South America. Uh, that was a little over 23,000 feet. Um, so that those have been the four I've done. Uh, next on my list probably will be Mount Vincent uh, down in Antarctica. And then from there, you know, I'll have to have a conversation with my wife about uh, Denali and, and uh, uh, Everest. But, you know, it, like I said, those have been every one of them, different, unique experience. Um, Aconcagua was a bit unique because it's not really a technical climb, but it's 23,000 feet. And a lot of people take that lightly and you get hammered with storms up on the top of that mountain. And I saw so many people that were unprepared heading up that mountain, super sick. Uh, there were a couple of fatalities while we were up on the mountain. Um, it, it was just crazy to see what happens when, you know, you have lack of oxygen and poor decision-making uh, what, what can happen with some people. But 
you know, that, that's how it is up on those mountains. And uh, being up in the Andes, just, just incredible. You can just see over the peaks of all the Andy mountains for as far as your eyes can see. And sunrise coming up, just absolutely beautiful. August 14th, Doctor, we got a Cowboy Tough half-day adventure race uh, coming on at Cheyenne. Uh-huh. And I know the you've actually done some of these. I know the Swedish Armed Forces actually fields a team in these things. What's it like? Yeah, uh, unfortunately for this th- that particular race, uh, I have a schedule conflict, so we can't do it, but... Um, we had the World Championships here in Wyoming a couple of years ago, and that was the first time the World Championship adventure racing was ever on American soil. Um, the four years prior to that, so it was a five-year race here, and they had uh, World Championship qualifiers. I competed in all, all five of those. And what they are essentially, these are multi-day expedition races, uh, four to 600 miles, continuous racing, uh, non-supported, non-stop. Uh, so you, you sort of have to manage your nutrition, manage your sleep. Uh, you barely sleep on these, maybe an hour or two a night. That's it. So when you get back, you're fairly uh, loopy and, and a little delusional <laughs> when you finish. But, um, you know, again, mental challenge, physical challenge and, and incredible scenery. What's really cool about this is, uh, you know, if you look on our social media page, my son just did his first race with me uh, about two weeks ago. And this was not like a, a little kid's race. So you know, he's been watching me do these races for years. He's 11 years old right now. And he's he's always wanted to do it. He has a lot of training with me and everything else. So we signed up for an eight-hour race. This is a national qualifier race um, over in Idaho. And, you know, it, it was his first race. He'd never done any smaller ones or anything like that. So I didn't know how he's going to do. Um, he was the only kid in the race. Uh, there was not even teenagers. He was the, uh, the only kid at 11. And we ended up getting, I think it was the seventh, seventh or eighth out of about uh, 30 teams, all adults. And wow. he did great. We got all the checkpoints. We finished in seven hours, no breaks, continuous racing. Uh, we were kayaking. Uh, we were trekking through some really remote wilderness, uh, bushwhacking through, through, you know, you couldn't see five feet in front of you. <clears throat> we were bushwhacking through that. And then some really, really technical mountain biking. And he stuck with it the entire time and no complaints. He was, you know, helping. It's all map and compass, no electronics. Uh, he took a, a navigation course like the week before. So, you know, he was looking at the navigation with me, but really had a great time. And, and again, this was not an easy race whatsoever. And he stuck with it and we ended up doing really well. If you could check with the race officials there, I'm sure you have some connections. If I could bring a jet ski and a motorcycle, I'd like to be on your team. <laughs> That'd be good, but I don't know if the motorcycle would get through some of the areas. We went through. <laughs> the jet ski would be nice, that's for sure. <laughs> so in 1962, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers broke through the wall at Alcatraz, got in the water, and were never seen again, allegedly. You've made that swim successfully seven times. How hard was that? Yeah, you're really uh, finding all the – you've done your homework here, done the details on this. Um, yeah, so, uh, again, um, all these things have good stories to them. When I was out in residency and fellowship out at Stanford, you know, I was up at the bay, and I saw people swimming in the bay. And I was like, man, these people are crazy. The water's cold. There's sharks out there, everything else. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, people swim from Alcatraz. And so I looked it up and everything else. Believe it or not, I'd never swam before in any competition whatsoever. I mean, I could tread water in a pool and sort of doggy paddle and things like that, but I never knew how to swim. So I saw this. I said, I'm going to do that. So, um, you know, with everything to get motivated, what I did was sign up for a race. 
and it was nine months away and I had to figure out how to swim from Alcatraz. So um, being an engineer and scientist, I bought a book and read on swimming technique and everything else. I went out in the bay, I was practicing. The first few times, I think my wife thought I was drowning when I was out there. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, it's the technique I read in the book. She's like, yeah, you may want to read that again. But, um, you know, I, I, I figured it out and ended up the first swimming event I ever did was swimming from Alcatraz. And, you know, they, they take you out there on a boat. And when the race starts, you jump off the boat right at Alcatraz Island and then swim to shore. And, you know, you're all excited. You have all this adrenaline going. And then as soon as you jump off the boat, you're like, that was a bad decision. <laughs> you're in that water. You feel how cold it is. You feel the currents. You feel the waves, uh, everything else. And you're like, man, I, what did I do here? Uh, so then, you know, you just uh, arm in front of the other and just start swimming and uh, ended up finishing the race. And, you know, I just got the bug on that one. That one, that's exciting every time I do it. I get that I get that feeling every time in that race. The water is different every time. The challenges are different every time. It's really an amazing experience. And, yeah, I've done it, uh, I think, seven or eight times uh, so far. And I love that. That race is great. And, and that swim is just incredible. Uh, this, again, a lot of it comes back to experience and scenery. And, you know, what you see and what you observe from that perspective you know, you just can't describe it. And, you know, you'll see sea lions, you'll see their little beady eyes poking up and looking at you. And, and that freaks you out a little bit. You're like, is that a shark? But, you know, sharks usually don't come up and look at you like that. Um, so, you know, it, it is fun and, and it is really exciting to, to be able to do things like that. Well, knowing what you know now, do you think those guys survived it? Well, they easily could have. Um, you know, again, I, I, I'm not built like a swimmer, um, you know, uh, as a wrestler and everything else. So I don't look like a swimmer whatsoever. And I was able to do my first swim event ever with no problem. Um, so I, I think they easily could have survived that. Well, Dr. McGinley, you are an inspiration to all of us aspiring orthopreneurs. <laughs> and I really appreciate you coming on the show to share your vision and your practice and your life with us. Very thankful. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on today. And, you know, again, we touched on a lot of topics. If any of the listeners have questions, um, I review any of the comments or emails that get sent into our company. So if you go to any of our websites, uh, McGinleyInnovations.com, McGinley Orthopedics, the McGinley Clinic, essentially if it has McGinley in it and you type it in, I'll end up seeing it. Uh, so you can easily reach out. And, you know, as far as contact info, uh, my personal email is McGinley at McGinleyInnovations.com. If you want to chat about climbing, racing, minimally invasive procedures, activism in, in medicine, whatever you want, just shoot me an email. I'd be glad to catch up with you. An honor and a pleasure, sir. All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate it and uh, appreciate what you do. Wow. What an awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. McGinley, for coming on the show and sharing your life with us. I'm including links in the show notes for a lot of the things that we talked about today, including a link to why are you so sedentary.com <laughs> after talking with them all I could think of you know I got mountains to climb I got shark infested waters to swim we got to get busy I, I hope it was as inspiring to you as it was to me well I'm always inspired by you out there in the listening audience if you ever want to reach out to me device nation at protonmail.com. Let me know what's going on in your world. Is there somebody out there you would like us to talk to that you think would bring a lot of value to the listening audience? I want to hear from you the best of the best. I hope you all have an awesome week this week. Stay safe, and I look forward to having you around next time.